The following presentation is not suitable for young children. Listener discretion is advised. Hey there, a quick note before we get started. This is a special bonus episode of Modem Mischief. Starting next month, we'll be releasing regular bonus episodes on the first Friday of every month to our subscribers on Patreon. For as little as five bucks a month, you'll not only be supporting the production of the program, but you'll also receive these regular bonus episodes. Go to patreon.com slash modem mischief to subscribe. And now, on with the show. A double pleasure's waiting for you. What you talking about, Willis? <laughs> Adam Gorman went to his freezer and grabbed a fresh Bud Light a little before 9 p.m. on November 22, 1987, just in time to tune into the Bears football highlights. He changed the channel from ABC's Nightline to Channel 9's 9 o'clock news, where the local Chicago sportscaster, Dan Roan, was already narrating the start of the highlight footage. Future Hall of Fame running back Walter Payton got the ball and ran toward the end zone. He was 20 yards from the touchdown when he spun around a Detroit defenseman. Adam sipped his beer. 10 yards to go. Then, 5 yards. Peyton was steps from the end zone when the TV cut to black. The room fell eerily silent, and Adam sat forward in his recliner. What the fuck? He muttered. His lights were still on, so it couldn't be the power. Ugh, Adam groaned. It was that old TV again. He told his kids not to mess with it. Maybe unplugging it and plugging it back in and fix it? Adam hurried to the end of the couch, but before he could get up, the screen went fuzzy and there was no sound. The screen twisted and a figure came into focus. It was a man. No, it was a man wearing a rubber mask and sunglasses. The silent figure sent chills up Adam's body. The diagonal striped black and white background twisted and turned out of focus. The image made Adam nauseous and sent a chill up his spine. Adam blinked and the television screen showed Dan Roan again. Instead of talking about football, his face looked as frozen as Adam felt. What the hell was that? Was he hallucinating? Well, if you're wondering what's happened, Dan Roan laughed, shifting uncomfortably in his chair. So am I. On this episode, bare asses, signal hijacking, and one hell of an unsolved mystery. I'm Keith Cornelot, and you're listening to a very special bonus episode of Modem Mischief. You're listening to Modem Mischief. In this series, we explore the darkest reaches of the internet. We'll take you into the minds of the world's most notorious hackers and the lives affected by them. We'll also show you places you won't find on Google and what goes on down there. This is the true story of the Max Headroom Signal Hijack. Channel 9, hosted by the WGN Network, experienced a Chicago-wide signal interference. The station spiraled into chaos the second the screens went dark. While the disruption only lasted 30 seconds, viewers were left perplexed and upset. Who had interrupted their service? Should they be concerned about the strange man on their screens? Clued in Channel 9 viewers that night recognized the plastic face and the bold background since it wasn't the first time a similar image commanded their screens. The figure from the hijack bared a strange resemblance to the fictitious early 80s TV host, Max Headroom. 
This is Max Hedrum, and what you're about to witness is one of the most sinister-sounding intros to a trailer to one of the greatest epics ever produced in the history of television. There's more. The show titled Max Hedrum starred Matt Frewer and was a parody of reporters in the 1980s. Hedrum was a character who was part man, part prosthetic, and part digital enhancement. The result was a Joker meets Ken doll figure that delivered news from a dystopian future, something only the 1980s could have conjured up. Just as the second season was set to air, however, the show was canceled. Despite its short stint, the sarcastic, square-jawed profile was well known to cult TV viewers of the late 1980s. As half of Chicago was reeling from the Max Headroom hijack, hours ticked by and the airwaves fell silent. It was 11.15 p.m. by the time Marie Scharf was getting into the plot of the newest Doctor Who episode airing on PBS. Marie popped a piece of popcorn into her mouth and let it melt as the doctor consulted Leela about where to land the TARDIS. The show's color got dimmer and dimmer until it was almost imperceptibly dark. Marie squinted, wondering if it was a part of the episode. Then, white and black lines flashed across the screen in a dizzying spiral. The sound was like nails screeching on a chalkboard before the audio gave way to an eerie static that made Marie's skin crawl. A masked face that looked like something close to a Batman villain appeared on the screen in front of a jumpy background. He's a freaking nerd, the television spewed. The voice was reminiscent of a distorted cartoon. The audio became a garbled drone and made the hair on Marie's neck stand up. The image distorted like it was being flushed down a toilet, and the audio was nothing but a static moan. The air around Marie felt charged as she stared at the masked man moving maniacally across the television screen. The camera cut to a wider, lower angle of the man bent over. His face was off screen, and his bare ass was front and center. They're coming to get me! He screamed. And as he did, a hand, a woman's hand, came out of the side of the screen and swatted the bare bottom like it was a petulant child. Marie's hand shot to her face, covering her jaw. What in the name of holy f Come and get me, bitch! The masked man yelled. His screams and shrieks faded into a distorted, symphonic laugh. <laughs> then, just as quickly as he arrived, the signal cut back to the Doctor Who episode. You should look often with the old ones of your tribe. That is the only way to learn. I'll get you a hot drink, miss. Marie couldn't comprehend what she just saw. Across town at WTTW, the network that hosted PBS in Chicago, the phones rang off the hook from alarmed and outraged viewers. The noise grew into a cacophony of chimes, setting Wade Sykes' teeth on edge. Sykes was the station director for WTTW and in the middle of fielding concerned phone calls and apologizing feverishly. There'd never been a signal hack like this before, and no one knew what to do about the signal interruption, including Wade. But Wade wasn't the type to wait around to take action, and he couldn't be idle while his ratings tanked. He needed to catch the punk that did it. Uh, Mr. Sykes? An IT tech hovering near Wade's door said. What? Sykes barked. We think the disruption came from inside the studio, the tech mumbled. Inside? Wade repeated. It made sense. To hack the service, the masked man had to be inside the building. The hair on Wade's neck stood up at the thought. 
Fuck that. No one got to show their bare ass on Wade's network in his studio, not even Wade himself. Wade pressed the button for the studio's speaker system. Security, please report to all exits. The station's been hijacked, Wade said into the microphone. WTTW is on lockdown. Stay at your current location until further notice. Wade pointed to the IT tech. You're coming with me. Me? The tech stuttered. Why? If the hijacker's in the building, Wade said with a maniacal grin, he's not going to make it out. Two security officers locked down the WTTW studio, and Wade spent nearly three hours combing the building with his nameless IT tech. As the men reached the end of the employee list, there was no sign of the perpetrator. It was nearing 3 a.m., and Wade had no answers about the breach. The phones were still ringing off the hook with disgruntled viewers, and he was sure the station's owner would be livid once he found out. Wade needed to call him. But before he did that, he had one other phone call to make. It was time for Wade to call the police. Wade called the Chicago police, who had already heard about the hijack from WGN station. They quickly interviewed the employees at both stations and broadcasting offices, but no one knew anything about the intrusion. The police quickly realized that they needed help. And within hours, the FBI and Federal Communication Commission arrived to aid the investigation. At the time of the headroom hack, broadcast signal intrusions were a rare phenomenon, with attacks limited to small stations. Carrying out the hijack would require special knowledge and tons of expensive equipment. Unlike disruptions in the past, the headroom intrusion had no apparent motive, method, or culprits. Even the federal bodies struggled with where to begin. Leading the probe was Agent Marcus from the FBI and Sergeant Perry from the Chicago PD and they were assisted by Phil Bradford from the FCC. After Marcus read over all the interview notes from the Chicago PD, he didn't have a lot of fresh ideas. Bradford suggested that the police look to other known hackers to try and generate some leads. Marcus and Perry looked at the man from the FCC like he was speaking Chinese. Other hackers? The idea, quite simply, never crossed either of their minds. Neither Perry nor Marcus had known that other hackers existed at the time, but Bradford pulled out two flimsy case files to show them. The first known television signal disruption had happened almost a year earlier on April 27, 1986. HBO was airing The Falcon and the Snowman, a movie released the previous year. Around 12.30 a.m., the screen flickered into color bars with a message superimposed on top that read, Good evening, HBO, from Captain Midnight. $12.95 a month? Ha, no way. Showtime slash movie channel? Beware. The four-minute intrusion was the first recorded broadcast hack, and HBO stayed hush around the incident. The FCC was quietly ushered in to consult on the case. Whoever instigated the hack had used an uncommon text generator to program the display screen during the signal interruption. Only a handful of satellite companies used the text generator, leading the FCC to a Florida satellite company called Central Florida Teleport. The federal investigative team narrowed down on a suspect, John McDougall, who promptly admitted to the hack. When the recent task force tracked down McDougal, he was freshly released from his jail sentence and wasn't too keen on going back. Without a job, he also lacked the equipment needed to carry out the hack. 
police moved on from McDougal as a suspect. The next hacker the task force wanted to chat with was from a hack that transpired in September 1987. A hacker infiltrated Playboy TV and posted a flurry of messages instructing viewers to repent for their sins and find Jesus. The hacker was quickly identified as Thomas Haney, a technician for the Christian Broadcasting Network. Haney was caught and sentenced to one-year probation. The team visited Haney and determined that he wasn't their man either. Haney was kept on strict house arrest and wasn't allowed to have access to technology from his home. He didn't know anything about the hack and passed a polygraph test to prove it. Bradford was upset that neither of his leads panned out. And now, two weeks since the first hack had taken place, the case was cold. Just as the task force was running out of leads, an anonymous source popped out of the ether that would lead the investigation in a surprising new direction. The story of the Max Headroom hijack made its way from mainstream news to the message boards on Chicago underground bulletin board systems, a dial-up system resembling a less sophisticated Reddit. From there, news spread across the United States hacker boards. Groups of hackers and freakers reacted to the signal intrusion with curiosity, awe, and hacker pride. Freakers are techies who use the art and science of manipulating telephone networks to access the systems which live on them, aka, they're both a precursor to modern-day computer hacking. Two days after the news hit the online bulletin board systems, a person with the anonymous handle of Beepogue seemed to know more about the hack than most, since, well, the hack was all he posted about. From his immature rattlings, police discerned that Beepogue was a Chicago native who was part of a freaker group in a Chicago suburb. The freaker group was supposedly led by two brothers in their early 30s called J and K. Beepogue claimed that the brothers planned to do something big a week before the headroom hijack. They even told Beepogue to tune in to Channel 11 on the evening of November 22nd. The task force was instantly interested. Investigators wanted to learn more about the brothers and messaged Beepogue about a meeting. They wanted to talk to the freaker before J and K found out he was posting about their hijack. When the task force asked Beepogue to meet, the hacker didn't respond. Bradford suggested that the FCC use its resources to identify the IP address and thus location of the postings. Internet in the late 80s was mostly text-based and revolved around online forums like Usenet. Computers accessed the internet and forums from a specific IP address that could be used to lead police to the location from which a user was sending and receiving data, aka posting to message boards. When the FCC located the IP for Beepogue, they were led to coordinates in the Chicago suburb of LaGrange. On December 20th, Agent Marcus and Officer Perry made their way to the suspected home and rang the doorbell. A moment later, a woman opened the door. When they asked if she had been posting on the online message boards, she laughed at the absurdity. Oh, gosh, no. That'd probably be my son, Brian. Her face sobered up. Why? Is he in trouble? Perry assured her that her son was not in any trouble, but the meeting was urgent. The woman retrieved her son, and she sat fidgeting as investigators spoke with Beepogue, known better as 13-year-old Brian Hume. Brian would meet up with the brothers and other freakers at Longshot Arcade, but he only knew the leaders by their initials. A sketch artist was brought in and drew profiles of J and K based on Brian's description. 
Investigators rushed the sketches to Longshot Arcade, where the manager immediately recognized the pictures. He knew the men as Tommy and Mark, not Jay and Kay. He also told police that the brothers lived around the corner on 8th Street and Central. We've got you now, Marcus said, running after Perry to the squad car. We've got you now. Investigators felt the adrenaline building as they sped to the house. Marcus called for backup as Perry stopped the car with squealing tires. Investigators ran to the home on 8th and Central, and Perry immediately started banging and shouting, Police, open up! No answer. At work? Marcus offered. Maybe, Perry said. Or he twisted the doorknob and it opened. They're getting rid of evidence. In that case, Marcus said, we should head inside to be sure. With backup on the way, Marcus stretched out a hand and pushed the front door wide open. The investigators stepped inside and felt all the air leave their lungs. The house was completely empty and the brothers had vanished. Investigators tracked down the deed of the home and found that it had belonged to a woman named Tammy Sharp. She was listed as having children, but none by the names Tommy or Mark and none with the initials J or K. After the uneventful bust on the LaGrange home, the investigators had no other suspects. The case officially went cold and has remained that way since 1987. The investigating task force remembers the headroom hackers as the ones that got away, while the rest of the Chicagoans that remember the event remain disturbed by the chilling events of that November night. As a result, the tale of the haunting hijack of Max Headroom will never truly die. I'm Keith Corneluck, and you're listening to Modem Mischief. Thanks for listening to this special bonus episode of Modem Mischief. Don't forget to hit the subscribe or follow button in your podcast app right now so you don't miss an episode. This show is an independent production and is wholly supported by you, our listeners. And the best way to support the show is to share it. Tell your friends, your enemies, send a postcard to a prisoner. And if you like these bonus episodes and want more of them, support us on Patreon. For as little as five bucks a month, you'll receive an ad-free version of the show, plus monthly bonus episodes just like this, exclusive to subscribers. Modem Mischief is brought to you by Mad Dragon Productions and is created, produced, and hosted by me, Keith Corneluck. This episode is written and researched by Lauren Minkoff, mixed and mastered by David Swope, a.k.a. the Mighty Mix Master D-Money. The theme song You Are Digital is composed by Computer Bandit. Sources for this episode are available on our website at modemmischief.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media at Modem Mischief. Thanks for listening.